Hello and welcome to the A to Z of Tech podcast and today's episode, Q for Quantum. As always, I'm your co-host Louise alongside Shreya. Um, to be honest, this is a topic that I do struggle to get my head around a little bit, so I am hoping that today's guests will be able to enlighten me somewhat. And I am delighted to say that we're joined on this episode by a trio of wonderful guests. We have Dr. Alistair Brash, who is a postdoc researcher at the University of Sheffield, focusing on quantum optics in semiconductors. We have Sumer Zamir, who is a product manager in PwC's Emerging Applications and Technologies team. And last but not least, we have Rebecca Lee, who is a manager in PwC's cybersecurity team and has just completed a master's degree in information security with a focus on blind quantum computation. Hi, Louise. I'm totally with you. Quantum is a term I've heard and used a lot, but never quite understood the context in which it's being used. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from our speakers this afternoon. With that being said, Alastair, no pressure, but this feels like a great opportunity to ask you if you can explain to us what the term quantum actually means for those of us who are not actually physicists. Okay, yeah, uh, thank you for the introduction. So quantum physics describes physics really at the smallest scales that we know of. Um, ultimately, everything in our universe is made of particles. Um, and we call these fundamental particles because we can't break them down any further. They're kind of the smallest unit. Um, so the most common examples would be that light is made up of particles called photons uh, and electrical current is made up of particles called electrons. Um, and so quantum physics describes the behavior of these individual particles. Um, but it's kind of worth saying that when we have lots of these particles, we don't really see quantum effects. So, for example, inside a computer, every logic gate is actually operating on thousands of electrons or um, in the sort of fiber optic networks that make up the Internet. Each sort of pulse that represents a bit of data is actually thousands, if not millions of photons. Um, but if we start going down to the single particle level, then we start seeing some very different physics emerge uh, and kind of quantum technologies would be trying to exploit that to realize new technologies. Wonderful. Thanks for that overview, Alistair. It sounds like a lot of small particles make a very big topic called quantum. <laughs> what does quantum physics have to do with other areas that we hear about, for example, quantum computing? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, quantum mechanics itself has been around for about 100 years now, and it was initially very controversial. Uh, I would say it took a long time before we had kind of the experiments that could reach this sort of single particle level. Um, but steadily, sort of throughout the previous century, we saw a lot of its predictions be sort of verified by experiments. Um, and then really more recently, um, as we've sort of confirmed the theory, we've kind of turned our attention to what we could do to kind of exploit this physics for technologies. Um, so I guess I would say there's kind of three main kind of categories of quantum technologies. Uh, the first of these would be quantum computing, which is certainly in the news a lot at the moment. Um, so quantum mechanics kind of gives rise to a different kind of logic, um, kind of computational logic to classical computing. Um, and for certain mathematical problems, uh, fortunately some very useful ones are included in this category, it can give a very large improvement in speed. Um, so to take an extreme example, uh, if you had a problem that on a classical computer would take longer than the known lifetime of the universe, so 14 billion years, if we could make a perfect quantum computer, you could get this down to seconds. Um, so, so 
for certain problems, quantum computing could be much, much faster. Um, and then the second of these would be quantum communication. Um, so this is normally focused on security. So because these are kind of fundamental particles, we can't split them any further. Um, but there's also kind of a fundamental law that says we can't clone single particles either. Um, so what this means is that if you're communicating with single particles, an eavesdropper has to actually take some of the particles in a way that disturbs the signal. So then the receiver is kind of aware of this disturbance and they know that their security has been compromised. So you can try resending the information again with a different encryption. Um, and then the third category would be sensing. So certain kinds of quantum states can uh, basically allow you to measure physical quantities with, with more precision than would be allowed in classical physics. Um, so a couple of possible examples would be uh, ultra-precise clocks. So maybe people have heard of atomic clocks. So that's one thing. Uh, or uh, an example I've seen in the news recently is um, making very precise measurements of gravity. So you could kind of use this for underground surveys on building sites. Thank you, Alistair. I actually really feel like I'm learning things here. So this is this is really nice for me personally. Um, could you tell us then, with that context in mind, how does this translate into the type of research that you're looking at yourself? Okay, yeah. So uh, in Sheffield, uh, I think you mentioned in the introduction that the topic was kind of quantum optics in semiconductors. So that's kind of looking at the interaction between light um, and matter at the quantum level. So I guess, so sort of single photons, single electrons. So what, uh, like one kind of example of the kind of experiments that we do is that um, we put some, some light in from a laser and then this excites an electron. And then sort of from the way that we structure our semiconductor samples, the electron is confined. And then when that electron um, sort of loses the energy that it's gained from being excited, it will emit a single photon. So I guess maybe the subtlety here is with the laser we've started with with classical light, um, but through the sort of semiconductor we've converted it into quantum light, so single photons. Uh, so that's kind of the the basis for the kind of experiments that we do. Um, so one thing we could do with that is that we could make what you call a single photon source, which you could use for secure communication, or you could also kind of use it to build a, a light-based quantum computer. Um, and then maybe one kind of development of that is so if you use photons the difficulty is that um photons don't really interact with each other uh, which which is a good thing because it, it it makes them less susceptible to noise um but you can do something where say one photon changes the state of the electron and then the state of that electron controls the state of another photon so you can kind of create logic gates between photons using the semiconductor uh, as the sort of intermediary so hopefully maybe that gives a bit of a flavor of what we're doing in Sheffield. Um, thank you. Um, at this point, I'll bring in Sumer, if I may. Um, if we can turn to you on this topic, it'll be interesting to hear where your own interest in kind of quantum has come from and how that translates into some of the work that you're doing with PwC. Cool. Thank you, Louise. Um, and thank you, Alistair. That was, uh, that was really insightful, even though I feel like I've heard that many times, but every time I hear it, it always gets me excited um, about some of the applications and things around quantum. Um, so yeah, for, for me specifically, um, I, I would I would like to define myself as someone who's a bit of a tech enthusiast. Um, I love reading about these uh, different types of, of, of new technology technologies that are coming around the corner. Um, and a couple of years back, uh, quantum computing specifically, uh, caught my eye while I was, I guess I was working in the disruptive innovation team at PwC. Um, and, you know, one of our 
one of our key one of the key elements of that role is basically trying to understand some of the technologies that are, you know may significantly impact our industries in the next five, 10, 15 years. But I think one of the one of the really interesting things around quantum, um, especially around the the commercial element of it, is that I think everyone appreciates, at least at a high level, that it is something that can make a real you know revolutionary change in the way that we tackle specific problems and just going back to what Alice was saying there are very specific problems that quantum computing uh, you know you know you'll notice how I'm focused on the quantum computing side of this uh, which is where my focus was uh, where quantum computing can solve now in, in terms of I guess like you know which kind of companies are looking into this and you know who's involved all over the place you know governments you know the, all the large tech technology players are, are thinking about quantum and what it can do at the same time, you have startups as well, both on the hardware side and the software side. So it's a very exciting space. And, and I'm sure over the next 5, 10, 15, who knows, maybe even longer, there'll, be continue, there'll continue to be loads more interest in what content computing can bring. Wonderful. Thanks for that introduction, Sumer. Um, what are some of the growth areas or investment opportunities that we're seeing with regards to quantum? So it's a good question. Um, I think whenever we do speak to clients, at least initially and uh, for the last couple of years, at least, it has been more around just understanding the applications of what quantum computing can bring to them. And the, the, the interesting thing is this across all industries, like, you know, whether you go from aviation to transportation to cars to finance to material sciences to industry, everything, everyone's involved. Now, as with all investment advice, this is a, uh, it's not everyone's own decision-making process. Um, but it's a, it's a very interesting, I guess the, the number I would like actually like to share is maybe how many, how much, how much governments have started investing into quantum computing. Now, a couple of years back, I think the total global um, levels of, of investment were around like $2 billion, which is a significant amount if you think about we on at that time and probably still now we're not really anywhere near close to getting a you know, quantum computer that can actually do very many things um but even over the last couple of years we're now closer to a number which is you know 22 and a half billion of investment from governments all around the world which is incredibly exciting and that's just you know you can just imagine if governments are doing it there is a lot of investment going all over the place um even in the private sector you won't see as, as big numbers um, but even last year, you know, you were talking about investments in the, you know, a couple of hundred million um, around uh, a, a startup, which is actually focused on uh, photonic uh, quantum computing, which is another, obviously, I think Alistair mentioned that just before, which is a type of quantum computer. Um, so, yeah, my, my expectations, and I'm sure the wider industry is that it will continue, uh, continue to pique people's interest in the investment, I imagine, will continue to increase. Wow, there's definitely lots of opportunity there uh, for the industry with quantum. Could you give us some examples that are already maybe in use that our listeners may be familiar with? Sure, thanks, Shreya. Um, it's a hard one because the thing with quantum computing is that to really get the real applications uh, for use as of today, we really need the hardware to kind of catch up and that in itself could take quite a bit of time. But what a lot of clients and what a lot of companies are doing and they've most likely spent quite a bit of money doing it is figuring out you know which one of these applications are more shorter term in the next like you know, five years time 
know, which ones are the ones they should be investing in to see, you know, whether they can actually get some you know, noticeable improvement in results through a quantum computer. So a couple of areas that we could we could think about that people may have heard of. So if, if we start with like simulation, for example, um, you're, th you're talking about like say drug design, you know, in the pharma space. You could even be talking about Monte Carlo, for example, in the finance industry. You know, these are things quite short term. On the other side, you've got optimization problems as well. So this is thinking more around, let's say, you know, logistics and supply chain management. You know, quantum could help around that. Um, microchip layout. Yeah, think about you know semiconductors. Very very interesting because they, you know it's the next stage of you know what's the most efficient way to kind of structure the circuit. Um, the other side of the show was interested in machine learning and AI. So you know, I think uh, Alistair mentioned just around your know, probabilities and things, but just around sampling, for example, there's loads of different variety of use cases, and it already depends which industry you're focused on. Brilliant. Thank you, Sumer. Really nice to hear some of those kind of use cases and hopefully put it into a bit of context for our listeners. Um, you did mention cryptography there. So that seems like a uh, excellent segue into introducing our third guest, Rebecca. Um, so we have already briefly mentioned uh, quantum computing. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and your own interest in quantum? Yes, thanks, Louise. Definitely. Uh, so I, I, um, many years ago, did my undergrad in physics and uh, did some quantum mechanics as part of that. Um, and more recently, I've just finished a master's in information security. And I, what I was really keen to do was to just understand a little bit around what quantum was. And, um, and you know, there are some really big terms like post-quantum um, cryptography or quantum cryptography and I just didn't understand what those were so that was kind of the beginning of my journey was to really try and unpick what the difference is um, so I focused on an area of quantum cryptography which is essentially using a quantum computer which as Alistair and Samir were saying is a machine that can exploit quantum mathematics and quantum logic and if you took that machine could you create a new type of cryptography that you can't do with the computers of today and and what would that look like so that's what I sort of focused on in in my my master's um, but there's this other sort of also also really cool area of quantum that's often in the news called post-quantum cryptography. And um, that's where, um, you know, really, you know, the greatest minds, I would say, are looking for uh, new mathematics, um, sort of just what maybe you'd call it normal mathematics, not quantum mathematics, um, to base a lot of our crypto protocols on so take the ones that we have currently and make them resistant to a quantum computer if and when it's built. So those broadly sort of quantum crypto, which in summary is taking a quantum computer and doing something new and post quantum crypto, where we're taking what we already have and trying to make it resistant to a quantum computer. Those were the kind of two different areas and, um, and you know, that's sort of where my passion was trying to understand what that big problem was and, and you know, go into the weeds a little bit um, with some protocols that I looked at. Very exciting, Rebecca. Given your experience and work with cybersecurity, how does quantum crypto and quantum computing sort of play with your work in cybersecurity? 
Yeah, so it's a really interesting one. And I think it's something that's in the news a lot. And it can often seem quite scary for businesses. Um, but the, the short answer is that, yes, there is a sort of horizon threat there around um, a quantum computer being built and it potentially being able, um, if, if it's built uh, correctly, let's say, to be able to break a lot of the, the crypto that, that businesses and the internet and you know the, the, the World Wide Web has in place today. Um, but really in, in the work that we do and, and kind of what we're seeing is um, whilst it is a threat, there are there are ways that you can prepare for that threat. Um, and you know what it really comes down to actually is doing maybe a little bit of what maybe you'd call crypto housekeeping now. So in real simple terms, that means you know, finding out what you have and where you have it. So, you know, do you know all of the different crypto controls that you have in place? Do you know, you know, actually who owns them? You know, who looks after them? Who manages them? And can you put a plan in place to change them and update them should, you know, a, a quantum computer um, be built that can actually break them? Um, so yeah, so that kind of that's um, what we're seeing is is kind of working with clients to to sort of look at that problem and start you know maybe preparing for for the future. Thank you, Rebecca. So it sounds as though maybe things aren't quite as pessimistic as sometimes the media might play out, but it is sensible for businesses to start thinking about their reliance on crypto and how they use it and are there improvements that they can make to make sure that if in a post-quantum world, um, encryption is less secure than it is currently, we have mitigations in place. Yes, definitely. And I think, you know, what you're saying about, um, you know, and, and what Samir and what Alistair have pointed out is there are so many amazing things that we will be able to do with a machine like a quantum computer that can exploit quantum logic. And there's so much to be really excited about. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, if it was built and if it was built uh, correctly to be able to sort of crack some of our current crypto controls, obviously there would be a threat there. But, um, you know, the basics of knowing what you have and where you have it um, and having a plan in place is, is a really good sort of start of 10. Lovely. Thank you for that discussion, Rebecca. If we can bring all of you in maybe for a bit of jargon busting. There's a term called quantum supremacy that's been uh, heard quite often in the media. What does that actually mean? Would any of you volunteer to start off? Start us off. Uh, well, I, I can have a go at that. Um, so I guess quantum supremacy is in the news a lot at the moment because um, we have some experiments that have been published recently that have, have claimed it, and I guess it's kind of seen as a sort of landmark on the way to quantum computing. So quantum supremacy would be um, when a quantum machine is able to solve an a problem using a quantum algorithm that couldn't feasibly be solved in a reasonable timescale using the best classical algorithm. And then there was another term, I think you mentioned Alistair earlier in the, on, in the discussion, um, about a, a qubit. Could you explain what a qubit is? Uh, yeah, sure. So qubits are the quantum equivalent of, of a bit in sort of classical computing. So in classical computing, bits are, are one or a zero. 
you know that that's that's how all your information is ultimately encoded in ones and zeros so in quantum it gets a little bit more complicated and people often talk about the idea that it can be both one and zero simultaneously um i guess the way to explain this so the simplest case would be you could have we call it a superposition state which is where it's um, some combination of one and zero. Uh, the simplest superposition would be that you have sort of 50% probability that it's zero and 50% probability that it's one. So if you measure a qubit 100 times in that state, 50 times you get zero, 50 times you get one. Or, well, if you measure it enough times, you get good statistics anyway. Um, so I guess you could think of that state as being like tossing a coin. Um, so that, so that, yeah, that's that's a qubit, and you can kind of see from that that basically qubits contain more information than a classical bit, and that's kind of the foundation of quantum computing that there's this extra information in there that you can exploit potentially. That was really insightful. Thank you. Oh, sorry, Rebecca, would you like to? Add? Yeah, I was just going to jump in to say so. This is something that I get asked a lot, and I definitely had when I was starting my journey in my head, and the way that I've kind of. Um, just managed to sort of calm that itch in my brain is to just think of like Alistair was saying you know um, a bit is either a zero or a one and really that's a mathematical framework if you think about it it's it's us saying if the electron's there we're going to label it one and if it's not there we're going to label it zero and actually a qubit is just another mathematical framework that describes um, what the particle is doing so whether it's kind of spinning up, you would call that a one, and whether it's spinning down, you might call that a zero. And all of the in-betweens, because particles do actually just sort of spin on their axis, you can label that in a mathematical framework, and we call that a qubit. So I think it's just, you know, going back to what Alastair was saying right at the beginning is, you know, quantum mechanics is, is maths, and we've built computers that can exploit that maths. And in order to run those computers and, and make a machine, um, you know, you need a new mathematical framework to describe the kind of the, the, the qubit, which is the equivalent to the bit. So in the same way that a classical computer exploits Boolean logic and you can create this massive machine that does really cool things, you know, that's really at its very core Boolean logic. And with a quantum computer at its core, it's quantum logic and you need a qubit um, as your mathematical sort of fundamental framework. Thank you both. Um, if we if we take a step up above the particles and the bits and the qubits and think about some of the I suppose the timelines involved in this type of technology and computing becoming more mainstream how might this compare to other types of innovation that that we've seen in the past the past few decades maybe this is one Sumer, you could you could start with sure no, thanks louise um it's a hard one i i would i would say like even when i looked at it a few years back there was a lot of talk about oh, maybe we'll get you know some sort of quantum computer or even achieve quantum supremacy in the next like three to five years but you know just based on on the reading i've, I've seen it really depends who you're asking some people are saying we might have a you know error-free quantum computer in the next five years obviously they have a vested interest because they're actually building the quantum computer itself and then you have other people who say actually you know what 10 15 20 like it's 
it's all very, very wide range. Um, the way I actually like to think about it is actually going back to like, you know, when we actually came up with classical computers all that time ago. That's how I think about it. It's that scale of innovation. Like you used to have these, you know, classical computers which used to take up rooms. Like they used to be huge, huge rooms and they would do the most simple things that you could think of. That's how I think that we're pretty much at the same stage or maybe we're even a little bit earlier in that time. Though. But it's really exciting how things you know, can move along so quickly. So short answer, hard to say, a very exciting time. So given that, that this might take a while to come through or maybe it has already come through, what are some of the use cases that you all expect to, we might start to see in the next five years or so? I can I can try answer that one. Um, so there's there's loads, um, and it really depends which industry you're talking about, as I as I mentioned before. Um, but I can I can list out a couple just to get everyone a bit excited. So um, you can have um, you know bidding strategies around you know, in the finance finance sector. Again, you could even do more online marketing if you think about it. That's a, a really big piece around um, you know and in, in the minds of loads of people is like. As we kind of go forward, you know, how much do you actually pay for data, you know, when people are searching um, and using the internet? And you know, obviously all of that could change really quickly as well. Um, fraud detection, patient diagnostics, network distribution around the communication side is one too. Uh, video compression, things you wouldn't even think about really. It's like it can be very technical. Um, even like design optimization around the industrial side. Right. So just thinking about like well, one of one of my favorite examples, just like wing design and airplanes and things, right? Like you wouldn't even think about it, but it's just simulating how how does a wing actually manage air resistance, right? It's, it, these little things because you can get that um, you know, potential accuracy through a quantum algorithm of all these like because I guess quantum uh, to a certain degree like you know it mimics the natural world. If you can kind of get an understanding of that and build an algorithm to support it. You know, your variety of use cases across all industries is very exciting. And the, and the, the ones I mentioned were specifically around the five to 10 years. Some of the even more exciting ones are the 10 plus years. Um, we can get into that as well if you'd like. Alistair, would you like to add anything? Yeah, maybe if I could um, sort of follow on from that a bit. I think Samir focused mainly on computing. Um, and I would say I think computing is probably maybe overall the hardest quantum technology to realize. Um, so I think in communication, I would say that probably we're sort of already seeing applications. So there are a couple of companies making commercial quantum cryptography systems. Now, it's not that clear how many they've sold or who's using them, but certainly companies are evaluating them as, as part of their sort of security portfolio going forwards. Um, and actually, I mean, one really nice example that I, I remember sort of reading about a few years ago and possibly the first commercial quantum technology is actually a quantum random number generator. So this idea of having a probability distribution with a qubit. You know, I said, you know, if you if you measured it 100 times, you get 51s or 50 zeros. But each individual measurement is completely random. So basically, you can use that concept to uh, create truly random numbers, which is something that computers can't really do. They can approximate randomness, but they can't create sort of true randomness. So, and those have actually been commercially available for, oh, I think, at least 15 years. So, yeah. Sounds like there's a lot of convergence between academic research as well as commercial application today, but there's a lot more to look forward to in the quantum space in the next five to 10 years. 
Thank you very much for joining us, Alastair, Rebecca and Sumer on today's episode. And thank you to our listeners, as always. Don't forget to subscribe to our series so you don't miss our next episode, R for Robotics. Mm -hmm.